welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby, where we talk with your favorite LGBTQ authors. I'm Anita Kelly, and we have a very special guest today. Her name is Barbara Wilson. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Anita. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am great for this nice hot summer day. So it's a little um, bit cooler on the west coast. Is it? Just where I am. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, it's hot and humid as usual here on the east coast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Barbara, I I would love to talk about your latest book called Not the Real Jupiter. Um in this book, we're privy to Cassandra Riley's next adventure as a translator and a sleuth. And I'm wondering if you would tell us a little bit about the book and, and what happens to Cassandra. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, it's the fifth in the series. And like a lot of uh, Cassandra's books, it begins in another country. Um, this is in Montevideo. Uruguay, but it rapidly moves to Oregon, uh, where Cassandra has to travel to sort out some editorial complications for the writer that she's working with, Luisa Monteflores. And um, Lu Luisa is kind of a difficult author, uh, having problems with the publisher, or changing the cover, changing the title. So Cassandra is going to the Bay Area anyway, and she decides to drive up to Oregon and meet with the publisher to kind of sort it out. And instead, she finds herself in the midst of a murder investigation with a body that fell or was pushed off a side of a bluff. So she's under suspicion herself. And as she basically lives in London and needs to get back to London, she decides to take on some of the investigation herself and she goes to Portland and is kind of house-sitting for someone. And she encounters some publishers, some Latina writers, a children's book author who's very famous, and an attractive librarian. So at the same time, she's translating a couple of books and those play a role in the storyline. And that's the main story. Wow, that sounds awesome. And I have to tell you, I am three quarters of the way through the book. So don't tell me how it ends. But <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. No. But I can't put it down. I'm I'm really enjoying it. It's it's so I don't know. It it's it just feels like coming home like to read one of your your books. Um um I was so excited to 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 talk with you. Um, you were one of the first writers um, that I read of you know lesbian novels uh, when I first discovered lesbian novels back when I was a little a little baby dyke. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> not not that long ago, but you know, it, it's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I think I really was one of the first, and certainly people sometimes say, "Oh, yes, Murder in the Collective, first lesbian mystery I ever read, sometimes first lesbian book I ever read." So oh, yeah. that's really heartwarming. Oh yeah, that must be. You know, it's uh, it's really awesome. So, uh. This whole idea of a translator slash sleuth is really unique, right? Um, 
how did you come up with with this idea for Cassandra, um, you know, to to kind of fulfill both of those roles? Well, um, I have been a translator myself, and I did quite a bit in my 30s, and I've kind of retaken it up. Um, and so I've translated some books from Norwegian and Danish. But um, I also spent a year in Spain at one point um, during college and loved it there and lived in Barcelona. So I, I thought it would just be really interesting to have a sleuth who traveled around the world and she had to have a, make a living in some way. So I thought being a translator was great because she could travel to South America, she could travel to Spain, she could um, travel to the U.S. Uh, where she was from. Uh, but she could also just travel everywhere. So I think that was my original idea, but I also got really interested eventually in the idea of how being a translator makes you very alert to what people say, how they say it. Um, you're always looking for meaning. And that's kind of the same thing that a detective does. And since I've always been really interested in the figure of a detective, I was looking for something unusual. And I thought um, she has a perfect excuse for traveling and asking questions. So I think that's that was behind it. Yeah, that is. It's really unique because... Um... I, I don't know of any other translator sleuth uh, out there. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> and, come across one. and that's interesting what you say that like a translator um, is someone who really uh, is, is observant, right? Um, and, and not only of like the written word, but of the spoken word. And, it, and I think that's what uh, therapists do also, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and she often has to hold the author's hand in some way or make something go right. Um, she's also very financially insecure as a freelancer, so that often gives her an incentive to try and investigate something or wrap something up. Things are just always a little bit unstable for her. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, gives it a gives her a little depth, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So how did you decide to write another Cassandra Riley book? Um, because I think the last one was written in, like, was it 20 or 2000, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Case of the Orphan Bassoonist was uh, in 2000, and that was set in Venice. And I'm not sure I actually thought about putting her aside forever. Um, but I was getting very interested in writing nonfiction. You know, I'd been writing about Cassandra traveling, but I wanted to write my own travels. So I, I wrote several travel books, a lot of travel journalism. And then I got more interested in Scandinavia and the indigenous Sami people. So I started writing about that. And um, I was continuing to translate some books from Norwegian and Danish, and I think that made me realize that I had more to say about the profession and the practice of translation. And I think I also, by now, really wanted to have some fun because I, I some of my books had become more serious. So writing about Cassandra has always been a delightful hobby, really. Um, she's always been interesting to me because she lives her life with such freedom, more freedom than I have. <laughs> okay. So I, I was going to save this question to later, but I'll ask it now. So are you Cassandra? 
Uh, no, though <laughs> we do have some things in common. Um, we both have uh, Irish grandfathers. My grandfather was born in West Cork and came when he was about 15 or 17. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, we're both translators, obviously. We have Irish passports uh, in addition to U.S. passports. So in those ways, we're, we're similar. I'm a little bit more of a stay-at-home. I have never wanted to be permanently an expat. I, I like... Uh, well, I don't. I I would hesitate before I say I love living in this country. However, I'm attached to it and have so many friends and family here that I I don't really want to live abroad. Whereas she gave up living in the United States a long time ago mm-hmm. and uh, was kind of based in London. Okay, that's so cool that you have the dual citizenship with Ireland. Um, and is that because of your grandfather? Yes. Okay. Um, because so many people left Ireland uh, for economic reasons, they kind of extended uh, the possibility of getting a passport to anyone who could prove they had a grandparent, at least, if not a parent. So I took advantage of that in the 80s because at that point I actually was living in London and had a girlfriend, and I was seriously considering just staying in England, and I needed a way to do that. And then I found out, oh, I, I could get a Irish passport. So I did. Cool. Yeah, now they've extended that even to great-grandparents. Uh, I, I missed it by one generation, though. Uh, <laughs> oh, my... right. Oh, of course. Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, so was it difficult to transition um, your characters from, like, the year 2000 um, up to the to the year 2021 um, and and was there anything in particular that you really had to focus on to ensure that you know it was a believable change uh, and progression for Cassandra right um, well I set the book um, in about two years ago 2018 okay. 19. So the society that she'd been living in that we were familiar with was pre-pandemic, and there was still easy access to global travel. Um, So that's not true anymore. Um, If I were setting it actually in 2021, everything would need to be different. And fortunately, I had kind of started the book then and just you know, continued it. I think there's some question about Brexit. You know, they haven't yet voted on Brexit yet. And so she's kind of wondering what changes that will make. But the main things I actually had to change were the technologies. Uh, So Cassandra now uses a smartphone (laughs) and she communicates by text as well as by email. And she can also do some of her research online. Uh, She can listen to audiobooks. She can use Google Maps. But as a character, she actually hasn't changed that much from the way I originally conceived her. And she doesn't have a stable group of friends. She has one good friend in London who she uh, stays with when she's there. And then she has these ongoing friendships like with Louisa, who lives in Montevideo, and other people. But um, I originally conceived her as someone who translates and travels, and that's still exactly the same way she is. But she has an age 20 years, so now she's in her, like, 60s, and physically she's still fit, um, 
but she's slowing down a bit. She's thinking about age. She's noticing, you know, noticing this. But I think being older is actually very interesting to me anyway, because it gives her a chance to embody a longer span of history, especially of the LGBTQ kind. So for interest, uh, for instance, while she thinks of herself as butch still, um, in a rather old-fashioned way, I guess. She's very aware that there are lots more way of identity, uh, you know, identifying as queer in these times. So she's up on things. She's not a little old lady. She's mm-hmm. not a spinster sleuth, exactly. But mm-hmm. she's invisible the way that older women are. And I thought, this is actually really interesting because... I don't know about you, but I grew up on Miss Marple and, you know, women of that ilk. Mm-hmm. And I thought, really, why not a spinster lesbian sleuth? Because before we could get married, we were all kind of spinsters, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I've been playing around with that idea. So in that way, it's it's changed from who she was when she was in her 40s. Oh, I love that. That is so great that you <laughs> that you took those qualities that you know, or or really things that happen to you as you age and just embrace them. Um, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. and um, I I remember also what's the one Jessica Fletcher? Uh, that was another. Oh right, murder yeah. she wrote. Yes, that's yes. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I grew yeah, up with that every no. Sunday night. <laughs> I remember her too. Oh, great Angela Lansbury. Yeah. yeah. I saw her in a play a few years ago in uh, London. Believe it or not, it was a, a Noel Coward play wow. and um, Life Spirit. She was in her 80s. Oh, she wow. was dancing around on stage in high heels. I thought, go, oh, my Angela. <laughs> wow, that is fantastic. Good for her. Yeah. Nice. So, um, uh, you already mentioned that you, um, or that Cassandra is, um, able to do her research online now. And I'm just wondering what kind of research did you have to do for this Jupiter novel? Um, and, and, um, like, I mean, you've had a, a lengthy career in, in writing and, um, you mentioned that you've done some nonfiction uh, writing. And so I'm wondering how much of your writing career have you spent doing research? Probably a lot because I like to do it. Oh. Um, I, I love archives. And in my nonfiction writing career, I've written um, cultural history and biography. I spent a lot of time in archives in Norway and Denmark and Sweden. But for this mystery, I didn't have to do as much as some that I did in the early days, because for one thing, um, there's Google Maps and you can kind of walk down a street in Google um, looking at things and, and thinking about them. Whereas before, I had to take three trips to Venice um, and read a lot of odd things and look for them and try and find people who could explain things about musical instruments in uh, Renaissance and earlier Venice. And kind of the same for Trouble in Transylvania. I actually had to go to Romania and stay in a spa to research it. That's a hardship, so though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very interesting. You know, it just kind of opened up to tourism, and there was really nothing to eat except pork chops. Oh, um, wow. But the spa was really 
completely fascinating. I never felt or saw anything like it. Um, so I love that. Yeah. But for this book, um, since I live in the Pacific Northwest in Port Townsend in Washington, I did not actually have to research the Northwest too much. I'm really familiar with the Oregon coast and with Portland, where most of the action takes place, mm -hmm. and also with the Bay Area. So my wife and I went down to Newport, where some of the action takes place, and we visited the aquarium uh, to see the octopus there. <laughs> and we also um, stayed in the Sylvia Beach Hotel, where I've stayed before, oh, which cool. has, you know, those kind of theme rooms, each one for so, a different author. So that's a real place. It's a real place. Yeah. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Yeah, it's been there, I think, for about 30 years. They've kind of changed some of the authors from time to time, but um, they've had the Edgar Allan Poe room forever and also the Melville room. So, wow, that's <laughs> yes. great. That's fun. Yeah, that's really cool. Place. Yeah. So, I have to ask is there a Pam Nilsson novel waiting to come out? No, there's not. Oh. Um, I know. <laughs> there's so many people who really like Pam, and I love Pam. Um, those books were so important to me, I think because they were the first mysteries I wrote and because they sort of embodied the world I lived in then mm -hmm. of the collectives and kind of Seattle being kind of a bit, you know, down and out, really. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say that Seattle doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think that I would find it difficult in some ways to kind of reconnect with who Pam might be now. Um, it's not that she's not interesting to me, but I, do, I saw her always as a little bit of an accidental detective. I mean, she's she's got a big heart and she wants to help and she's a feminist mm -hmm. and she's really interested in these questions. But I'm not sure what she would be doing now. I mean, I almost think, you know, she'd be living a rather quiet life. Mm -hmm. Whereas Cassandra offers a lot more possibilities mm -hmm. for a kind of um, act active older woman who's out and about much more. That that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, Cassandra is a is a little quirkier too. You know, more more to work she with. She's a bit quirkier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that Pam wasn't quirky in her way, but I think that, um, you know, I, I know plenty of mystery writers kind of keep their uh, detectives the same age, you mm -hmm. know, like Sarah Paretsky. It's sort of hard to believe that B.I. would actually be close to 70 or 80 by now, probably, but she's still kind of hanging out of windows and getting beat up and having <laughs> romantic things with young men. So she's always, you know, things are changing in, she can now use a smartphone, but she's still around 40. So I always wonder, what does that do to your memories if you're a detective? You know, <laughs> do you erase those memories or do you kind of, you're vague about them maybe? Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I, I would have had to do something like that with Pam, too. Is she still going to be 30 years old in a Seattle that doesn't have collectives anymore? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's totally a different world now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what was your first published uh, LGBTQ novel and, and when was that? 
It was Ambitious Women. Uh, It was in 1982, and it came out with Spinsters, Inc. Um, So I had a a straight woman and a bi woman and a lesbian. So each had a section, and it was very political. Um, And uh, I had previously published lesbian short stories in Sinister Wisdom and other magazines, but I think by the 80s, my work had become more explicitly lesbian because I knew the audience better mm-hmm. and I knew my own identity better. And I was living more in a world of lesbians rather than kind of more aspirationally. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I remember so, that novel. Totally. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I, I do. That's pretty wild. Um, so... Like you've you've been in this whole lesbian publishing world for for a long time, and what what kind of changes have you seen over the years? I mean, did did you you mention um, uh, was it uh, Spinsters Press, um, Spinsters Inc. Yeah, Spinsters Inc. And uh, then there was Nyad. Did did you publish with Nyad? No, because um, in 1976, I had started a publishing company with my friend Rachel De Silva, and we started out doing letterpress printing okay. mm-hmm. um, and doing poetry. But as the years went on, um, we started doing Offset, and we started publishing Northwest Women Writers and anthologies and books on domestic violence. So that was kind of the natural when I uh, was publishing my first short stories and then the mysteries, too. I, I was partly writing the mysteries to help Seal Press financially. So, um, yeah, I... I published one book with Spinsters, Inc., and I also published my books in England with Women's Press in Virago and in Germany. But in the U.S., I was basically with Seal Press for many years. Okay. So so did you see changes in the publishing world um, as time went on? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think in the 1970s, there actually were some mainstream lesbian novels or they were lesbian novels that had a mainstream audience. And you think about Ruby Fruit Jungle with Rena Mae Brown or Skin Flicks by Eliza Alther. Mm -hmm. Um, They were actually popular with many more than just the gay community. But I think by the later 70s and the early 80s, there was a good handful of lesbian and feminist presses. And I think that was a political decision to learn how to publish ourselves. So we didn't have to uh, be dependent on mainstream publishers saying yes or no to us. And I think, um, you know, there were novels, there were nonfiction collections of essays there were lots of anthologies and and they were part of a network of bookstores Mm -hmm. literary journals and conferences you probably remember Mm -hmm. that mutually supported each other and um, they gave hundreds of women a space to publish and talk about lesbian and feminist issues and stories but I think in the 90s there began to be kind of a bifurcation. Um, Some authors began to be published by mainstream presses like Sarah Shulman and Dorothy Allison, of course. And then there were also more lesbian presses doing genre fiction because Mm -hmm. they were sort of following the naiad model of these books sell really well. There's not enough representation in the, you know, visual media Mm -hmm. movies and 
TV. So lesbian love stories and uh, mysteries with love in them and all kinds of things were important for showing how how we lived. I mean, I think they form a really interesting record of that whole time. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing to remember is just how incredibly labor intensive it was to get books typeset and printed and to distribute them. Mm-hmm. I think younger people, and I wouldn't blame them, I mean, they have no idea how hard we had to work and how much we had to do just to get uh, you know, publishing 10 books a year was considered kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, a lot of presses only publish maybe four books a year because wow. it was expensive. It was, um, you had to do all this physical work. So it did mean, though, that every book was precious and they were, people read them, they shared them, they yeah. bought them. Um, yeah. It was a very important period, and a lot of authors who people don't remember at all because they never made it out of that anthology world, but were so crucial to all of us. You know, you can still find them in all of those in all of those journals and anthologies, and I think they created the the world, the space for all of us to grow and 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 continue to be writers. Yeah. I mean, I things are different again today and you know it's always changing but i i do see younger writers um embracing a larger queer identity Mm -hmm. you know so it's not just lesbian um they are um you know writing novels with a mix of gay trans bi uh, lesbian characters and i i think that's great Mm -hmm. lots more young adult uh, novels too they're very positive about being gay could use that when we were growing up eh? yeah definitely yeah it's I mean when I think back to like the probably like the late 80s when I started reading you know lesbian novels and 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 what is available today it's just that it's night and day um you know you you can't really compare even to uh the accessibility of novels um you know I I remember uh having to find gay bookstores, you know, and, and around me, um, there was, uh, you know, I lived on the East coast in Pennsylvania and we had to go down to new hope or down to Philadelphia. Um, you know, and it, actually it was in Giovanni's room in Philadelphia where I, um, met, um, uh, I can't think of her name now that uh, she wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle. Uh, Rita Mae Brown. Oh, Rita Mae Brown. Yeah. 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 It was was just like kind of weird. She was there looking around and (laughs) so was I. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I know. Those things used to happen. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we we did have to go to the bookstores themselves, the physical bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. You totally did. And and it's just so different now that, you know, you can just get online and order anything and have it delivered to your house or have it delivered right to your Kindle. And, you know, uh, it, it's just very different. And, and so many genres and, um, you know, uh, queer presses out there that, you know, um, you know publishing houses. Um, it's uh, it's great, really. I mean, it's really great how we've grown. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, some of the drawbacks are that still mainstream audiences are not really aware of the range of uh, queer writing. You know, straight people don't 
tend to read a lot of queer writers. They'll read some, mm -hmm. the ones that they hear about, but they're not aware that it's a vast universe out there. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, you know, older writers don't always see themselves represented, represented either. Um, you know, there aren't so many mature lesbian characters out there. Um, so I, I think there's some gaps, mm -hmm. but I would agree. It's kind of astonishing. I mean, if you were, you know, a teenager and thought, oh, I'd like to read a lesbian novel. I mean, your computer would give you everything you needed in just a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, whoever thought that would happen. It's it's great. Yeah, yeah not me. So, um, was it last year you were presented with the Golden Crown Literary Society Trailblazer Award? Was that just last year? Yes, it was last year. That's cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much. So how yeah. was that for you? Can, you? can you tell us about I mean, that's a real milestone. Yeah, and I, I was very honored. Um, I think, you know, when you're young and when you're starting out as a writer and, and a publisher, as I was, especially writing and publishing feminist and queer work, you really don't think of yourself as a pioneer. You just think of the next book and pushing things a bit farther. Um, I did think historically at times uh, when I was about to throw something out, and I did manage to save a lot of our files from Seal Press, which are now at Oberlin College. Um, oh, and cool. Seal Press is still around. It's actually um, still a women's press, but it's now owned by Hatchet. It went through a couple of sales. But our um, files and archives go from 1976 to 2000 when we sold the press for the first time so yeah i do have some sense of history but um it was really cool i have to say to be in the company of others who've won or been awarded the um, trailblazer award like judy gron and um, i think they awarded it to audrey lord this mm -hmm. year yep. so it's not just living living authors anymore yeah um yeah, you're in good company anyway. Yeah, I feel in good company. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, also, you have won a couple of Lammies. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when was I that? One. Well, I won one for my mystery, Gowdy Afternoon, which was the first one with Cassandra Riley. And um, that also won a British Crime Writers Award for Best Thriller set in Europe. And it was made into a movie. So, lots of good things around that. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, it was that a good book. cast, right? It was a great cast. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of a weird movie, I think. But um, I, Marsh Gray Harden was fantastic. Yeah. And uh, the whole thing was really fun. I got to go to the filming for a few days and meet some of them and uh, just see how they did everything, which was really, really great fun. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. That's cool. So tell us about the Lammies. What? what you won one for Gaudy Afternoon, and what was the second one for? It was for Blue Windows, which okay. was a really different book for me. It was a memoir of my childhood um, growing up in Christian science um, and about my mother, who unfortunately developed breast cancer and didn't want to go to the doctor and kind of ended up dying. So uh, there are some funny bits in it, but it, it's a little bit 
grim at times, but I was really interested in that whole culture of Christian science and believing in the positive, not the negative, and the fact that the um, religion was founded by a woman. So um, it wasn't a traditional religion at all. And it really marked me, even though after I was 12, I, I never went to church again, but I always felt that it had been a big part of my life and I wanted to explore it. So, um, yeah, I got the Lammy for that one. Wow, that is really cool. Um, I had no idea, and and I had no idea that Christian science was it Christian scientists was uh, um, founded by a woman. I had no idea. Yeah, that doesn't seem it doesn't seem possible. <laughs> it seems like I know. It seems like yeah, a woman but... would be smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she maintained strong control of it um, throughout her lifetime and even beyond. Um, so it's kind of fading out now, but it was hugely popular at the turn of the century and into the 1920s. And, um, there are still Christian science churches all over the place. So many of them are now being sold and repurposed, um, for other, other things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Um, so do you read your own book reviews? I do. Okay. Um, yeah. And... I um, I mean, I would say that the ones that are published in kind of mainstream places um, or written by people who are book critics are, are they're sometimes bland, but they're often interesting. And um, I do learn from them. I do, uh, you know, have a different attitude, I suppose, to Goodreads and things, though I actually enjoy kind of reading those too when I have a chance or when I remember because they are people's honest opinion and there's something very refreshing about that mm-hmm. and you know they'll just say right out oh, I was reading her memoir and some of it was interesting to me you know and some of it wasn't that interesting and you know I thought she went on too long about blah 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 so it is a little bit humbling but on the other hand I don't always you know, I don't find it useful in that they're not book critics, so they're just telling me their opinion, how mm-hmm. they felt. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you do get a feeling for actually people reading your books, and uh, I, I kind of find that really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Like uh, when you go on like um, Amazon, uh, you know, they have all people's reviews. Uh, yeah, and and you know. I don't always agree with them, um, but people just kind of tell it like it is, you know, or how they, they see it anyway. Um, yeah. And, and you can tell like who, who kind of misses the mark on, on, you know, the whole story. Um, they just didn't get it. Um, and, and that was probably part of why they, they didn't like the book, but, um, you know, um, but it's interesting to read what people think and, um, so how, how do you do, like, have you ever received like, um, like on one end, like a really glowing, raving, uh, book review. And then on the other end, like some real disparaging words, uh, how, how do you deal with those total opposites? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think one of the dilemmas about reviews is that you can't answer back, yeah. um, 
And so that can feel really frustrating sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I remember in 19, or no, let's see, 2004, uh, I published a book, a uh, travel book um, that was kind of idiosyncratic called The Pirate Queen. And originally it had a, a different title. And it was about uh, traveling around the North Atlantic, looking for stories about women in the sea. And um, so I took a lot of ships and I talked to a lot of people and I would kind of go to places like the Orkney Islands or Iceland and say, so what about women in the sea? And they would say, oh, they never went to the fishing. And then it would turn out they did go to the fishing. And so it was meant to be sort of about the ways that women's history is told and memorialized. Well, it started out with this woman who was an Irish sea captain uh, in Elizabethan times called Grace O'Malley, who which was a great character. And she had ships at sea in Clear, uh, Clare County in Clue Bay. And I really liked her. So I wrote quite a bit about her. And the publisher, which was Seal Press, the editor I was working with, since I had left off working there myself, she said, oh, we should call this the Pirate Queen because then people will want to read about it. And the subtitle should be Grace O'Malley and Other Women of the Sea. Anyway, in the terms of searching for this, people always were looking for female pirates. So they kept coming up with Pirate Queen, and it did sell a ton of books, you know, at least 10,000. But people were always putting on the Goodreads page and other pages, I thought this book was going to be about pirates. And instead, it's about a w bunch of women fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> so there was nothing I could say. I would I would wanted to say, oh, well, it's really about the ways that women are remembered. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know. Yeah. And instead, I just was sort of I had to be quiet. Yeah, yeah. There are not that many women pirates in it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that must be so difficult. I never really considered that that you cannot respond to you know either uh, like something positive someone says or a criticism um that's hard um yeah yeah it's you no know, on travel uh what's it called Tri um oh, that travel site yes um yep is it travel trip advisor trip advisor you know, yeah the people at the, the people at the hotel will say oh thank you for expressing your concerns i'm sorry that our standards did not meet you know we will endeavor to do better yeah um, if the person has written something like this was a crap place and the bathroom is a mess and there were no sheets on the bed <laughs> yeah right um, then the hotel person can answer but you can't really do that with amazon they don't let you respond yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that would probably, be probably that's good actually yeah yeah i, I can see some battles going on maybe I don't know but yeah that's one good thing about TripAdvisor you do get to respond um, we were just we were just in Rhode Island last week and and wanted to give some feedback but we didn't want to put it on TripAdvisor so we actually called the you know person themselves like so it wasn't on TripAdvisor because we didn't want to you know seem like we were being mean or anything you know <laughs> i know yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know i've had that feeling too yeah. i i just don't want to add to the bad feelings out in the world <laughs> yeah 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 but we just wanted them to be aware of a situation so 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, they probably appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. He he was good about it, so. So, um let me ask you this, Barbara. If you didn't write, what would you do for work? Well, um I suppose like most writers, I've often done um, other things than writing for work. I mean, I, I, I think that's very common because it doesn't make that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been fortunate in that because I had a publishing company, I learned a lot of skills that mm-hmm. um, I was able to use while I was working there. But also afterwards, um, I was always able to find work as an editor if I wanted it. And I have been interested in translation and have done that. I can always get, you know, a job doing translation. So um, nowadays I'm kind of semi-retired, so all I really do is write. I don't nice. uh, you know, do other kinds of work generally. But it's funny, I, I, there's nothing else I've really ever wanted to do. Um, I had this brief period when I was about 12 years old where I thought, oh, maybe I could be an interior decorator. I don't exactly know what brought that on. I think I was looking at a magazine and read something about that. And I thought, oh, you just go into people's houses and tell them, you know, what curtains to put up. That's fun. (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) otherwise I have never deviated. Um, There were many people in my life who thought this is never going to happen. Give up this crazy idea of writing. But I never gave it up. So um, it's, it's really been my vocation. I'm glad about that. So, so what's next? Is there, is there another Cassandra Riley novel on the horizon? Yes, I'm coming to the end of the first draft now, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. It's set in several places in England and also in Belgium, in Bruges. Um, So uh, I think it will come out next year. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Oh. You just made my night. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, and and um, do you like to hear from writer from your readers? Um, with oh, yeah. Positive yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I I have always heard from my readers. You know, first more in the form of letters, real letters but also um, through email and other forms. So that's always nice. And how would they contact you? Are you on social media um, or email? Um, I have a website for my mysteries, which is barbarawilsonmysteries.com. Okay. And there's a contact page there. So that's one good way. Okay. Great. Great. Uh, Sometimes our listeners just uh you know like to uh touch base with uh our writers after they've you know uh checked out their books so Mm -hmm. good to know so barbarawilsonmysteries.com um so any parting words for our listeners today barbara You mean writing tips or just sort of general uh, hang in there? (laughs) (laughs) It could be both or either. I know the world is falling apart, but, you know, still be a good person and love everyone. (laughs) There you go. All right. Those are important words because I'm telling you, some people are getting nuts. Like, Like, just 
it's like they were cooped up for over a year and they're getting out and I've I've seen so much road rage. <laughs> oh yeah. No, there's some strange things. Yeah, my wife Betsy and I went to Montana a couple of weeks ago and when we were driving through Idaho, we Betsy had been very foolish and not taken off some bumper stickers. We live in a pretty left-leaning community, and there were things like resist and uh, just even Biden-Harris. Anyway, this guy in a truck practically tried to run us off the road, got in front of us and slowed down, wouldn't let us pass. That's scary stuff. Uh, It was, yeah. yeah. Anyway, when we came back through Idaho, we covered them up with uh, some bumper stickers we bought in Montana saying, Montana, what a great state. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. See, you need a bumper sticker like I used to have in the 80s. It just said Ruby Fruit Jungle. And no one really knew what it meant or what it was about except those who read the book. (laughs) That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. But, yeah, that stuff is going on. It's it's really nuts. Uh, So those are great. Great words to live by, right? Be kind to everybody. Be good. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, that that's all the time we have for today. I wish we could keep talking. Uh, I love talking with you. And uh, listeners, be sure to check out uh, Barbara's latest Cassandra Riley novel called Not the Real Jupiter, uh, which is um, an awesome read. I think you'll all love it. Um, and uh, I'm Anita Kelly, and thanks for joining Liz Talk About Books, baby. So until next time, may your journey be lighthearted, peace be plenty, and be safe, folks. <laughs>